Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Free Marketeers podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Thank you for joining us for what should be another riveting, insightful, and thoughtful discussion because today we're talking about the global container crunch and how it affects us here in South Africa. Those of you who are new to the channel, my name is Chris. I'm the host of the Free Marketeers. With me on today's episode, we have a very special guest from the Cato Institute, Scott Linsikan. Scott, how are you doing? I'm uh, doing fine. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we're talking about the global con uh, container crunch. Uh, some people might have seen this in the, new in the news, for those of you who haven't. And you've gone to the shops and some of the products that you buy are high in price. This could be a part of that that reason. Um, for those of you who also don't know, South Africa's ports rank very low on the World Bank Global Index. That's also another factor. So we're going to unpack some of these issues, try and figure out the sort of related matters. Is this COVID-19? Is it just the Biden administration? Maybe we just want to blame President Joe Biden for this. But we're going to unpack that now because, Scott, you've obviously written a lot on trade-related matters, policy, uh, that kind of thing. So in a nutshell, if you can, just to start off with, what... What's happening at the moment? I mean, people can Google images and see what's happening at yeah. Los Angeles, for example, Long Beach, and just see queues of huge container ships. So yeah. what, what's behind this? Well, it's, yeah, it's crazy. So um, right now, uh, there are record numbers of massive container ships uh, floating offshore. Um, and, and then it can't even find space to anchor uh, in California um, at this point. But it's not just California, um, you know, almost all major U.S. ports. So Savannah in Georgia, Charleston in South Carolina, New York, New Jersey up north, Oakland in back in the West Coast. Um, almost all of these ports are dealing with these backups, with these ships just sitting around waiting to get in port and unload uh, these, you know, giant containers full of all the stuff that we we consume every day. Um, they're also waiting to pick up containers full of stuff that, you know, say American farmers or who else want to want to export abroad. So, um, you know, so it is like you said, it's causing really significant problems here in the United States. Um, it, of course, you know, you're having issues with just getting the normal stuff that you and I buy every day. But it's also creating problems for manufacturers who need input. So, you know, global supply chains, um, you know, a lot of companies uh, import uh, intermediate inputs, raw materials, equipment that they then use to make into other stuff. Um, in fact, the, you know, the big period of hyper-globalization was really about uh, a dramatic increase in trade and intermediate inputs. As companies got better at mapping out uh, global supply chains, comparative advantages and in information technology allowed this all to happen. Container ships got bigger and, and that basically all happened pre-COVID. Um, now, why is why do we have all these ships uh, waiting offshore, right? Why, why is this all getting snarled? Well, look, some of it is just COVID and the global pandemic being a global pandemic, right? 
So, and I think there's a few things going on there. Um, I mean, for starters, there's just a massive and continuous supply and demand imbalance. Um, so some countries start opening up, some countries start shutting down. Um, a, consumers getting were stuck inside and all of a sudden they have all this money to spend and they're not stuck inside anymore. And this really messes with, to use a technical term, um, the kind of standard consumption production patterns that we're used to um, and that that on which these supply chains have been uh, designed. So, you know, you design a supply chain, you kind of think you know where demand and supply are going. Sure, there'll be some ebbs and flows, but you can deal with that, you know, no big deal. But these aren't ebbs and flows. I mean, these are cliffs and mountains and, and, and that creates big problems. The other thing is that companies, particularly folks like automakers, um, last year just canceled a bunch of contracts. They just thought pandemic's going to last a long time. Nobody's going to need to be or wanting to be buying a car. People are going to be out of work. So we're just going to cancel a lot of contracts. Then when that collapse in demand didn't happen, they go, oh, no. And they try to get back in the queue. Um, which, you know, particularly for semiconductor manufacturers, where that's a big supply chain uh, crunch right now, they had moved on. They got orders from video game manufacturers and mobile phone and PC producers. Um, and because, you know, when everybody's stuck at home, we all are staring at our devices or playing video games or doing whatever and um, watching TV. And, and so demand actually for, for those things skyrocketed. And so when the automakers came back looking for uh, those chips, the chip makers were like, yeah, sorry, we don't have any capacity and you can't just build a semiconductor fab overnight. So, you know, get in line. And that's created a bunch of problems. So, so go, sorry, going back to the point, big just supply and demand imbalances. Um, but another big COVID thing is that, look, when ports have a COVID outbreak, particularly in China, where there's like a zero tolerance policy, the port shuts down. So when you have, and we had several major ports in China recently shut down, and that's just going to slow things. And again, you're going to create more friction in the gears, more sand in the gears of the, of the global uh, shipping and global supply chain uh, economy. Um, but then another thing COVID related is that, you know, at these ports or at rail terminals or wherever, um, there are new testing protocols in place or workers are sick and not showing up or workers are quitting and saying to heck with this. I'm going to go be a telemarketer and work from home. So all of these kind of little COVID things also play a role um, in uh, and, and this all kind of builds on itself. So I think, you know, at the superficial level, a bunch of ports offshore. And yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of COVID stuff. We keep hearing about the quote unquote new normal and how the world's going to look heading out of COVID and all this sort of stuff. And I think people should be, whenever we see a global event like COVID now has happened, when we saw the, the that big container ship blocking the Suez Canal, yeah. then we talk about trade. Then we... Right. Then we think, okay, how does this affect my life? What's going on? That kind of thing. So my question now is, what regulations, what policies, what things should we look out for in the future? What can, I mean, you know, I guess as liberals, libertarians, we don't necessarily want the government doing everything, 
right. or doing as little as possible, but what reforms could be made yeah. that can like better absorb this kind of event? Yeah, and, and that's, I think, uh, a great segue because I mentioned all the superficial stuff, all the pandemic-related stuff. But as I've written a few times and I just had a column come out um, uh, yesterday on this, um, it's- I'll link to that below. Yeah. What's that? Okay, great. I'll link to that, yeah. Uh, um, it's, it's critical for us to dig a, an inch or more deeper into this because I think really the pandemic- as much as it caused the shipping crisis, um, it really has revealed, particularly in the United States, uh, a lot of systemic long-term policy problems that, that created or at least laid the groundwork for the crisis, making it much worse than it ever needed to be. Um, and, you know, I, again, I think it's, it's essential that there's always going to be, there were always going to be some hiccups. You were always going to have these weird pandemic things, but um, they, they could have stayed uh, relatively minor and controlled, um, but for all of these other, um, what I would call own goals of sorts, right? I mean, we, we did a lot of dumb things in the past that laid the groundwork for the problem. Um, so here in the United States, uh, for example, um, we have uh, a, a thing called the Jones Act. I'll start with the Jones Act because it's a, a uh, of just such so egregious. So the Jones Act has been in place for over 100 years. Um, it's a supposed national security law uh, related to cabotage or essentially uh, shipping uh, or transport of goods between U.S. ports. So what the Jones Act requires is that any ship carrying goods between U.S. ports be made in the United States, owned by Americans, crewed by Americans, and flagged, meaning regulated under the maritime laws of the United States. So this is, it's one of the most onerous uh, most countries have some sort of rules and regulations for, for shipping. But the Jones Act is, is one of the most onerous sets of rules in the world. And what the Jones Act has done in the shipping context, so again, this was a national security grounds, supposedly. Um, we need a strong maritime fleet in times of war. So, you know, um, in case of, you know, in case we go to war, we have a bunch of ships we can we can put into service along with our battleships and the rest. Um, and well, we need a strong shipbuilding industry. Um, and so that's that's the point of the Jones Act. Well, the problem with the Jones Act, however, is that over the last century, the cost of making a ship in the United States um, has increased to absurd levels. So now it's about four to five times as expensive to make a ship in the United States as it is abroad. And this isn't just in places like Korea or China, um, which do have some subsidies for shipbuilding, but even in places like Europe, that's that's more kind of market oriented. Um, so what, it, what happens when you have a, a ship that costs four to five times as much? Well, people don't buy those ships. Um, and so what we've actually seen is the steady degradation of the U.S. coastwise maritime fleet. Um, we have very few ships that carry goods from port, U.S. port to U.S. port. Um, we have also very few 
ships that do dredging um, and the cost of doing dredging, which we have a dredge law that um, that that bars most foreign dredging operations and requires Jones Act ships. So what? So let's go back to the shipping crisis. How does this affect the shipping mess? Well, in two ways. First, um, we don't do a lot of deep water port dredging, which allows for big, more efficient ships. Um, so U.S. ports, can, very few U.S. ports can handle the biggest global ships, makes them less efficient. Um, so that's that's an obvious one. But another one that's a little more complicated is that the lack of that port-to-port shipping. Um, well, what do, what do we do in the United States? Well, we use trucks and trains. So instead of having a nimble coastwise fleet that could handle, say, taking a, a, a container from the port of Charleston to the port of New York, we use uh, Interstate 95, which is this big highway that goes right up the coast, uh, kind of near my house, um, and is constantly snarled with traffic and full of trucks. So when you have uh, the shipping crunch like we have, and there's a tremendous demand for trucks, um, well, a lot of those trucks can't be at the ports going inland because they're doing that that traffic that could have been done by coastwise shipping that we don't have, again, because of the Jones Act. Um, another one that's that's equally, I think, egregious is that the big, massive international container ships that, say, go from China to Long Beach. So these guys um, could, uh, if not for the Jones Act, pick up additional product while they're in port and then just hop up the coast to, let's say, Oakland from, from Long Beach, right up the coast of California. Can't do that in the Jones Act. So, so instead, though, importers are smart. They, they, um, oh, they, uh, or shippers, I should say, are smart. What they do is they have ships stop at LA, for example, again, and then hop up the coast up to Oakland. So it's a half full ship now. So it took some stuff and then it drops the rest because they, you can do that if it's just stopping in port and then taking stuff you got abroad up to the next U.S. port, that's allowed under the law. So, of course, so we have half full ships steaming up the coast, right, Um, which is just, again, inefficient. So Jones Act, big one. Uh, Another big one is um, U.S. labor law and labor policy. So, um, especially on the West Coast, so we have two major... um, unions here in the United States that handle, uh, that, that are for the longshoremen, that handle port work and a lot of the stuff that, you know, handling of goods, getting it off the boat, getting it onto the trucks and so forth, right? Getting it out of port and, and inland. So these unions are tremendously powerful, particularly on the West Coast. Uh, on the West Coast, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, um, uh, controls labor at every major West Coast port, including Hawaii and some in Canada. Well, why is this important? Well, anytime there is a negotiation, that union can shut down not only traffic going into one port, it can shut down the entire West Coast. Uh, and they've done this in the past. They've had work stoppages and, and boycotts and the rest. 
causes massive problems. So they have tremendous leverage in labor in their negotiations with the various port operators and the rest. Well, that leverage over the past couple decades has manifested itself in absolutely ridiculous contract terms. So uh, let's start with the most basic one, right? So it is ridiculously expensive to hire unionized longshore labor, particularly out West, but including in the East, because there's another union out East that has similar leverage, not as strong, but still similar. So you're talking about um, dock workers making 200,000 US dollars a year um, or more. Uh, the, the head of the East Coast Union makes like almost $700,000 a year. Um, four, four or 500 for his uh, dock working contract, supposedly, um, and another 200 for, for running the union, which is I'm, I a I, sweet gig if you can get it. Um, well, why does this, why do these costs matter? Oh, and I should add, uh, contract terms beyond that are that that again make labor really expensive are things um, like uh, you have to have certain number of staff workers even if they're not working uh, on a shift and so the East Coast labor contracts literally pay dock workers uh, when they're not working so again some of the highest labor costs, you can imagine. Well, so in times of uh, intense demand for these services, ports are are kind of over a barrel, right? Yeah, they could maybe add a third shift here and there, um, but they have to pay overtime and they, because these contracts restrict the hours that you can work. So a lot of U.S. ports don't even run 24-7. But even if they did try to expand the hours worked, it would be just crazy expensive to do so. And of course, you'd be locked into unionized contract and labor once demand slows down. So they don't do that. And so you have U.S. ports that just don't run 24-7. Um, and they uh, that unlike a lot of Asian ports, so that makes them less efficient. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that the unions aggressively have opposed automation of American ports on both coasts. So this dramatically decreases the efficiency of these ports. Um, and it, you, know, you mentioned that World Bank ranking, um, maybe so you don't feel as bad, the port of LA and Long Beach both rank around 335th in the world. The highest ranked US port is uh, Philadelphia around 85, and then Port of Virginia right after that, it's like at 88 or whatever. So. And a lot of this reflects, again, these inefficiencies that are built into the system thanks to uh, unionized labor contracts um, that are, are just ridiculous. Um, so and that's, of course, protected by our regulatory regime that that essentially, you know, anytime there's a, a dispute, then the union's going to win um, because we have a very permissive, uh, especially in California and out west, um, uh, permissive laws that that tilt the playing field towards towards unions and essentially, you know, require the use of unionized labor in a lot of cases. Um, but look, so studies show that that this has a dramatic effect on the ability of a port. This lack of automation has a dramatic effect on the ability of a port to get goods um, off a boat and inland and get the boat out of uh, the harbor, out of the port. So port turnaround times in the United States are well below the world average 
Um, and as mentioned, dramatically below the top players, particularly in Asia. I think the Port of Yokohama is number one. Um, and it's as efficient as we are slow. I mean, it's really a dramatic difference. And so in times of tremendous demand, um, you have uh, you have ports that, that just aren't efficient enough to handle um, the, the surge. Um, and there's actually, there was a great story in the Journal of Commerce a few weeks ago that there are a couple ports in the United States that are uh, not fully automated, but mostly automated. And guess what? One of them being the Port of Virginia, guess what? It's not having any problems. Um, the Port of Houston is also very automated. It's not having any problems either. So no ships backed up. You know, they're, they're, there is uh, more demand. They are having, it's a little bit slower, but it's nothing that they can't handle. And even though they are having similar amounts of record uh, turnover and record demand. So, um, and then finally, so, so that's labor. So we have Jones Act, we have labor. Um, the third big one is U.S. trade policy. Um, now this one, so for example, uh, the United States just imposed uh, duties, tariffs of over 200% on intermodal chassis intermodal from China. So uh, intermodal chassis are basically what trucks use to put, you put the container on the chassis, the truck hooks up to it, it takes the container from the port to a warehouse or wherever, right? Well, so we are now having a chassis shortage in the United States. And that's um, in part because the largest global producer of chassis is in China and its chassis are now subject to 200% duties that nobody's going to pay. Um, so we have a chassis shortage and numerous trucking companies and shippers have said, you know, um, until uh, things change, until we have more chassis or until import demand slows down, you got a problem. So we can't get ships in and out of port. And even if we could, the trucks don't have the chassis. Truckers don't have the chassis they need to get uh, get the containers out of port and, and back. And so you add this all up with, again, the stresses uh, that the Jones Act causes, the lack of, the lack of dredging. And, and there you go. You have a custom-built, intentional uh, mess. And like I said, so it's not going to make the it's not going to make the pandemic and shipping perfect, but it's certainly making things a lot worse. Yeah, we we read now in a lot of analysis the sort of idea in South Africa, especially of robust supply chains and onshoring and making sure that we survive these future yeah. shocks. But in South Africa specifically, we're looking at plans along the lines of localization. Yeah. So 42 products have been identified for localization. I mean, we've got a 44% unemployment rate on the expanded right. definition. And then the sort of, for me to play devil's advocate to you, then the argument is let's onshore, let's have our supply chains here so we can alleviate yeah. the unemployment crisis, create more jobs, that kind of thing. What, what do you think for countries like South Africa, more developing economies that, I would argue would benefit a lot more from trade. To me, trade I see as fundamentally win-win, or at least it should right. be, um, in the absence of subsidies and all that kind of stuff. But what do you think for countries like South Africa? We there are some steps in place. For example, the I mean, our state-owned enterprises are a big drain on the fiscus. There is news that the ports state-owned enterprise might now be partly privatized. Yeah. That the ports authority might get private investment, so that might help improve the ports. 
But just the, I wanted to get your take on localization and developing economies, so, as it were. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that uh, so uh, I think a lot of this, um, the government attention to supply chain repatriation and resilient economic resiliency and stuff is really boneheaded and misguided. Um, and the, I mean, the first thing and and I think this is not this is uh, this is I'll, I'll use the U.S. as an example, but it applies really everywhere. Um, is that, you know, I just mentioned all of these kind of non-market factors blocking the free flow of goods. Um, it's, it's then um, ridiculous to claim, aha, free trade doesn't work, so we need more protectionism, right? So, you know, we threw a ton of sand in the gears of an engine, and then we claim, aha, the engine doesn't work, I need a new engine, right? That's, that's a bit ridiculous. Um, and that, uh, so, I mean, I think that's the first, the uh, first big problem. And so, you know, in terms of what can developing country governments do, well, look, investment in infrastructure and in ports and the rest, I mean, there is a government role traditionally for a lot of the stuff, but yeah, I mean, start by privatizing, um, a state-owned enterprise uh, that runs the port. That's a good start. Um, and then, you know, working with the government on things like dredging and highways and, and that. that's, that's, you know, pretty, pretty standard. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, the other, other things that, that I think are the problems with this kind of repatriation move are that it, it really ends up slowing down your economy and, potentially making you less resilient, not more. And that's because uh, reshoring supply chains makes you more vulnerable to domestic shocks. Um, so yeah, you might protect yourself from an external shock. Let's say there's you know, the earthquakes in Japan, for example, right? So if you are importing from Japan, um, there's going to be a, a, an external shock to you and, and uh, it's going to limit your ability to import for a little bit. But um, when there's a domestic shock, so let's say you have an earthquake or a giant storm or a big fire or whatever, um, financial crisis, you name it, the, your ability to import will actually improve your economic resiliency. And so the key is not importing everything or reshoring everything. It's flexibility and, and dynamism. And so that's, again, where, where trade facilitation, where ports, customs is another big area. I mentioned that in my piece. The customs office out in uh, Long Beach is only open like nine to five, Monday through Friday. Right. So even if you had 24-7 port operations, you couldn't get customs clearance, right? So uh, that type of stuff, again, and clearly a government role in customs and clearance. Um, and so uh, port, port operations, trade facilitation, logistics, all of that, uh, that is to improve your flexibility. It's to get the sand out of the gears and let them run well. Um, and, and by having a diverse supplier base, abroad, onshore, whatever, um, that's what really makes you the most resilient. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I love free trade and globalization, but I would never say we have to import everything, right? I just want companies, supply chains, 
and the market to do its its thing. And, and that's the other thing that's critically important. I mentioned this before, but I'll dig into it a bit, is that you know, trade and globalization, free trade, free markets are going to boost economic growth. I mean, they just do. Um, that's pretty pretty standard in in the econ dogma or literature. Um, and when you have more economic growth, when you have more wealth, you have a better ability to withstand potential shocks, be they foreign or domestic. You also uh, tend to have um, more efficient enterprises at home. And that's going to lead to over long term, higher wages, better technologies. And so, yeah, you know, you're importing some stuff, but you're also making some stuff and you have a bunch of services and the rest. And so, you know, having having wealthier people, um, regardless of what they do, whether they're in manufacturing or services, I don't, you know, you really don't care, um, is critical to, um, to, to that type of resiliency, right? Um, you know, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the pandemic has been just so brutal for developing countries and some of the poorest countries. So they don't, they don't have that, that wealth. They don't have that. They're still, you know, kind of on the development side of, of growth. Um, and so when you think, again, you have to think long-term about these things. Um, you know, uh, if you want an economy that in 10, 20 years, uh, when the next global shock occurs, when you want an economy that's better prepared for it, part of it is just you know, getting wealthier. Um, and and having more stronger, more efficient businesses and and wealthier individuals, and so that's again, I think this you know kind of trade and globalization comes in. And the fact is that look, whether it's in South Africa or the United States, um, policies like protectionism, autarky, you name it, they just don't work very well. I mean, they might work for the protected industry sometimes. Sometimes, right? You're going to get some union workers making 200 grand a year. That's great for them. Uh, but you're going to have, uh, in the broader scheme, you're going to have a lot of harms. You're going to have companies paying more for manufacturing input. So maybe you protect your steel industry, but all the folks consuming steel, a lot of manufacturers, um, are and workers, a lot more workers, uh, are going to have, you're going to have fewer jobs, less output, less efficiency, lower profits. Um, so, uh, but beyond that, um, we actually see in the literature that protectionism usually doesn't even work out for the protected companies. So this kind of makes logical sense, but in reality, you know, as companies are protected, they don't invest their windfall profits in innovating and getting leaner and meaner. They end up just having, like I said, $200,000 unionized contracts, or they just profit take and give it to the shareholders. It doesn't even get to the workers, right? Um, and so uh, that, and that, that of course makes, like I said, it's logical because these companies are insulated from competition. They don't have to get leaner, meaner, bigger, better. They can just kind of rely on government protection. And so when you, um, when you see that and then throw in all the cronyism and corruption that comes with protectionist policies too, right? I mean, the, the guys that are getting the tariff protection are almost inevitably uh, cozy with the government officials, right? You know, again, here in the United States, the shipping industry, the Jones Act guys are incredible lobbyists. Now, of course, they devote 
a lot of resources to those resources that could be spent making ships, right? No, spent lobbying. Uh, the steel industry, very well connected. It seems like the steel industry almost everywhere is very well connected. But here in the United States, you know, they've lobbied for tariff protection. President Trump gave them these wonderful tariffs, wonderful for them, tariffs. Um, and so you have a lot of corruption, cronyism, and political dysfunction as well. And so when you throw it all together, you see that, you know, these kind of simplistic narratives of, ah, we can just protect everything and, and then we'll be resilient. It really uh, doesn't hold up. Um, and then the last thing I would note, sorry, I've been rambling for a while, but the last thing I would note is that um, the politicians and planners have this static mindset that... The problem we see right now will be the problem we have in six months or by the time the legislation that we enact in six months actually is implemented six months later, right? And what we've seen throughout the pandemic is that the supply chains are constantly adapting. Companies are not just sitting there going, oh no, I can't get screws from China, what am I going to do? I guess I'm going to shut down, right? I mean, only in a few extreme cases, like semiconductors, where there's just not enough chips. And, and But in most cases, the, the supply chains have adapted. Um, comp multinational companies have said, maybe I don't want all of my production in China. Or maybe I uh, want to have a, a diversified supply chain um, with um, some nearshored production here in the United States or in Mexico or in Canada, kind of part of the NAFTA block, and I want some abroad um, or, you know, and so forth. Maybe I want to have a different approach to shipping. Maybe I want to use, you know, a different, um, a different raw material that isn't sourced in a certain place. But this is going on constantly. And it's been going on since the pandemic first started in, in you know, uh, early 2020. And, and the, one of the things I've written about is that we really need to abandon the April 2020 mindset. And what I mean by that is that policymakers are still acting like it's April of 2020. Like the, the things that caused our grocery store shelves to be empty in April of 2020, paper towels, toilet paper, whatever, um, are the same problems that exist today which is nonsense. I mean, and you look at something like medical goods, for example, well, what happened here in the United, and I, I, you know, I'm going to use the U.S. as an example, but what happened when we were running low on face masks um, and other medical goods? Well, again, uh, we have, the United States has a domestic manufacturing base. Um, we manufacturers here saw the potential for profits, good old profits. They saw the demand. They maybe had a little, good old patriotism and they wanted to chip in. And so manufacturers shifted operations to make medical goods. Um, and now they are potentially, you know, knock on wood, they're shifting back to making other stuff. And so what can policy do? Again, policy ideally creates uh, the, the flexibility. It, it fosters uh, the ability or it lets companies adapt. So that is free trade, zero tariffs, zero export restrictions, get out of the way and let companies source from wherever's best. But it also, then there's domestic policies, you know, the, the critical element of this. And it's, I mean, of course, you know, there's labor policy there. Um, you know, I think 
unions are fine as long as they're you know perfectly voluntary and the government isn't isn't forcing people to get unionized and really dramatically tipping the scales towards organized labor but if you know um, but beyond the labor policy there's tax policy and regulatory policy and all these things that that either discourage or inhibit manufacturers and service providers as well from being tip-top efficient um, which in the best of times just means you know maybe a few some fewer workers and you know a little slower output but in the worst of times in pandemics means no output you know or bigger problems and so policy I think um, the best policy are ones that uh, just simply kind of create a very good, solid, predictable, and, um, and minimum, and not, not zero, but low, um, restrictions or, um, uh, invite kind of a, a minimalist environment for business. So business, you know, you're going to have taxes. It's inevitable. You're going to have regulations. That's inevitable, but they should be very simple and they should be, uh, very predictable and they should be very consistent, uh, and they should encourage, the type of investment and adaptation and the rest um, that allows companies to do their thing uh, when they need to. To ask you a bit of a meta question and put you on the spot in terms of predicting what might happen in the future. And I mean, in the US specifically, but you can talk about bodies like the World Trade Organization, which some commentators see as a bit sort of toothless. And I mean, what's it sort of doing at the moment? But you mentioned the 200% uh, tariffs yeah. that the current administration put in yeah. the previous administration was very high on the rhetoric of and the action of sort of america first more localization that kind of thing do you yeah. see that trend going forward what role do you think the wto and other bodies <clears throat> can maybe play or shouldn't play or should play is it the case of where you tell a country to do x it's going to do more of that it's like the michael yeah. scott meme i'm just going to do it harder now so yeah yeah is it, is it that sort of balancing act as it were I, yeah, so I'm, unfortunately, I don't see the WTO as playing much of a role right now. Um, you know, the, the WTO's appellate body. So the WTO has long had problems with negotiations, right? So the Doha round collapsed. Um, but the WTO up until uh, very recently was still a pretty well-functioning dispute settlement organization. Um, and companies, actually countries tended to comply with adverse decisions, but now the WTO's appellate body, which is like the Supreme Court of the WTO, is completely um, defunct because the United States blocked the seating of new appellate body judges, and uh, the Biden administration hasn't, hasn't changed that awful Trump administration policy. So the, the WTO is kind of, if anything, they kind of just can facilitate discussions, but I don't see much coming from them. Um, and I do, I think you, you raise a really good point. And something I don't think I, I mentioned before is that I do see a pretty big problem with a lot of the laws, not just in the United States. Trade remedies are a problem in South Africa too. Um, and under unilateral national laws that are theoretically allowed by WTO rules, but allow for the imposition of, of high tariffs um, without regard for domestic consumer or broader public interest issues. So let's go back to those chassis tariffs, for example. 
Those are implemented under U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty law. That's our net, our trade remedies law. Again, South Africa at least has a dumping law. I don't know if you all have a CBD law, but but anyway, and South Africa is a user of, of these measures. Um, so the, our law expressly bars the administering agencies from considering consumer harms or broader economic harms. So what does that mean? That means that in the middle of a global shipping crisis, the U.S. Department of Commerce could not consider whether the 200% duties it was going to impose might be uh, a bad idea at the moment. So it couldn't. If it, if it finds dumping, which it, the law is basically designed to find dumping, uh, another systemic issue. If it finds dumping, um, that's it. And, and the International Trade Commission finds injury to the domestic industry. That's it. There's no, there's no breaks on this system. So in our case, that means that you had, I mean, this is smack dab in the middle of the, the, the shipping crisis. This was just in like April or May of this year. 220% duties on the only large available supply of chassis in the world, right? Um, and it's just, it's insane, but that's U.S. law in a nutshell. So, so I don't unfortunately see this improving anytime soon. The United States is one of the most active users of trade remedies laws. It has bipartisan support. Um, typically these laws have a lot of political support because they are very complicated and extremely boring and they happen via a slow administrative process that takes like a year or more. Um, it involves these rigorous calculations and a bunch of numbers and nobody's going to pay attention to it. Not even economic journalists really pay attention to it. And so because of all that, it's a politician's best friend. You can hand out uh, you can use the system to hand out favors to politically connected groups like the U.S. steel industry, which has like 200 of these trade remedies measures are on steel or steel related products. Um, and and nobody really can figure it out because uh, a lot of us are rationally ignorant. We don't really care about where our stuff comes from. Um, and quite frankly, in the in the best of times, it, it still is there. Uh, maybe and we maybe pay a, a buck more or whatever, and that's nothing compared to the millions that the steel industry gets. So, unfortunately, I mean, I you know that type of that's a really huge impediment to reform. And again, not just in the United States. And I do see these things persisting. And and you noted, I do think some of it is going to persist because it is, like you said, kind of oh well, we just need to do the bad thing harder. Um, and this goes back to kind of the sand and the gears thing I mentioned earlier. So, you know, the Biden administration, to its credit, has been out on the West Coast trying to uh, alleviate some of these uh, backlogs. So they apparently the Biden administration was was integral in getting the ports to move towards a 24-7 operation. Good for them. But the Biden administration is also very, very close with organized labor. And never in a billion years, and in fact, is, is once uh, to back legislation to make unionization um, far more likely in the United States, if not mandatory, um, this thing called the PRO Act. So the, and this is just, uh, so it, they are not going to really fix the systemic underlying issues. They're not going to 
get that sand out of the gears. And so when the gears don't turn, well, what are they going to do? They're going to blame supply chains, which is exactly what they're doing, by the way. They're having this big supply chain review. Why aren't our supply chains working? Apparently, they're um, going to, uh, to get, they're going to uh, put the semiconductor guys over a barrel and demand more transparency on their, on their supply chains and the rest. Never mind that they're quietly supporting a lot of the things that make stuff make get make it the problem. And so um, if you look at some of the proposals coming out of the Biden administration and certainly the Trump administration before them, um, they're very nationalist, very protectionist, um, and they don't address a lot of these underlying problems. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of that's just good old fashioned politics. That point on the semiconductors makes me think of South Africa and other countries push, pushing the, the TRIPS uh, waiver regarding uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And I think, fine, wave IP, it doesn't mean factories are just going to pop up in South Africa and we can have the skills and the expertise to manufacture vaccines. It's a, <clears throat> I don't know. It's very, I'm, I'm the government. I'm going to shake my fist. and It's, it's, um, it's do somethingism. They have to be right. out there looking right. like they're doing something. Right. And so, again, you know, I think the Biden administration deserves a little credit for some of the stuff they're mm -hmm. doing right now. But a lot of it is just, um, look, people can't get their their beautiful new pickup trucks and they're mad about it. And so we need to be out there um, acting like we're doing something. And so we're going to demand all this stuff and, and we're going to act tough, um, even though it's not going to it's not going to fix anything. To be fair, if I lived in the US and I had a chance to get the new, is it the Ford F one fifty Lightning? I would yeah, also be, I would be outside the, the outside the Capitol building with my little placard. Well, if you're lucky, uh, you're going to get a massive subsidy for that bad right. boy because the the house the house wants it's something like twelve thousand five hundred dollar tax credit for electric vehicles made hmm. by unionized facilities. Only the union facilities. So never mind those wonderful Japanese and Korean no. facilities down south and right to work states. No, no, no. You can't get the you can't get the subsidy for that. You have to buy buy that buy that pickup truck. Then then you'll get it. Maybe Elon Musk at some point will just uh, uh, try and uh, circumvent these things by having all of his manufacturing supplies delivered by by his rockets that they won't yeah, come yeah. to ship. Drop, drop by a drone yeah. or something. Right. Right. My final question uh, for today is just around, I mean, I obviously hope that more countries pursue more trade and I think they will benefit more from that. Other countries that go more isolationist and protectionist heading out of COVID, their economies and their people's quality of life fundamentally will suffer more. So South Africa is obviously part of the Africa continental free trade area. Um, this gets talked about a lot, analyzed a lot. We talk about it a lot at the Free Market Foundation. Yeah, do you not to ask you whether it's going to work or not, but what do you think of, of ideas and policy like that, plans like that? Do you think there's potential in it? And I think, you know, how Africa can work with the US, China, others, because often it's couched as one versus yeah. the other country, right, right. but how Africa can can utilize trade to its own benefit. Yeah, I mean I think that the I'm 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 optimistic for the Africa wide agreement. Um, I think that its terms are pretty modest, right? The, you know, the liberalization there is not, um, is, it's, I mean, look, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine start, but it certainly, they, there needs to be more liberalization um, than what's there right now. Um, but I think the other big thing goes back to 
uh, trade facilitation and logistics and infrastructure, because it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm more of a 50,000 foot observer on this, is that one of the big impediments to um, to intra-African trade, to continent-wide trade, is simply roads and ports and all of that boring stuff to get the goods um, from place to place. And so, you know, again, where there where is there a role for for government is you know kind of helping to streamline uh, that um, and uh, you know again building roads, getting customs facilities up and running, um, eliminating corruption at those customs facilities. I mean, that's a huge issue. Um, and so that I think, you know, look, to the extent that those trade facilitation impediments are improved um, and to the extent that agreement, um, you know, leads to more liberalization then you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I hope, I hope it, I'm hopeful. Um, now where about the U S China stuff, it's much harder, honestly, um, because, Right now, you can't just be a an independent observer, right? You can't be Switzerland. Um, and it seems more and more that they're requiring countries basically to pick sides, you know. And in fact, the United States, the the U.S. rewrite of the NAFTA, the USMCA, includes um, di- provisions directly uh, limiting the ability of Canada, Mexico, or theoretically the United States to negotiate an, a, a trade agreement with China. So I would assume that similar provisions would be in future US FTAs. That's kind of how these things work. Once a provision's in there, it gets copy pasted to the next next agreement. Uh, and so it, it's, and I, you know, and then at the same token, you know, there's China's Belt and Road Initiative and the US is trying to do some counter stuff. So it's really, really hard. Um, I mean, you know, my personal view is, well, what can a country do is unilaterally, unilaterally liberalize and then just kind of say it's out of my hands. Right. I, you know, I have a MFN most favored nation obligation under my WTO commitments. That's it. That's all I did. Uh, But let's face it, unilateral liberalization is very tough, always has been. Um, And so, you know, that's a maybe a libertarian pipe dream there. But but that strikes me as the easiest solution to staying out of the U.S.-China conflict is just you liberalize for everybody and then just that's that's the end of it. There are no better notes on which to end, I think, than a libertarian pipe dream. So, <laughs> Scott, uh, thank you very much for your insights and your expertise today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. Uh, to the viewers, I hope that you found this episode useful and informative. Please, if you haven't yet, like the video before you leave and also subscribe to our channel if you haven't yet done so. Look forward to more content coming from us in the coming weeks. Um, for those of you watching this this evening, I hope you have a good Heritage Day tomorrow. Enjoy your public holiday. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Until next time, take care.